You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Luke 15, Luke 15, and you notice I'm not saying a specific verse because we're actually going to look at all of Luke 15 today. So Luke 15, if you want to get there, um, in January of 2019, was the first time that I presented to you as a church this little motto of glorify, grow, give. Uh, I went back through our deacons meetings notes and found that it was in October of 2018 that I actually proposed it to them that I was going to give it to the church in, in the January of that following year. And just that we want to seek to glorify God in all we do collectively and then individually in our lives, uh, that we want to seek growth, kingdom growth, numerical growth in our church and spiritual growth, spiritual maturity in ourselves as well. And then we want to give. We want to give of our time, our treasures, of our talents. We want to give faithfully and cheerfully of all those things that God has blessed us with. And I went back to, I, I, I do all of my sermons uh, in a written form, at, at least in the outline form. And I went back in my books uh, to that very first grow sermon that I gave you in 2019. And I want to just draw your attention to some things that I said then because I think it'll help us to see what we're talking about today. I said in that message, one thing was this, that growth is a kingdom principle, that God is about growth. He, he, he spoke to Abram, who uh, had, had nothing, had no status, had no stature, had no real following, who would become Abraham. And to Abraham, he said, your descendants will be like the, the stars in the sky and the sands, the grains of sand upon a seashore. And we see in the Old Testament that begin to take place with the people of Israel. We, we see in the New Testament that after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Peter gives this, uh, this message, this sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And 3,000 people were saved in one day. And we see that in the remainder of the New Testament, what we continue to see is people coming to Christ. And individual people who are in Christ <clears throat> growing and spiritually maturing as is instructed in the Bible. We're, we're not called to be saved and then just stay. We're called to become more like Jesus. And I talked in that message about there's a thing called kingdom growth. Kingdom growth is really made up of church growth and individual growth. That the kingdom grows when churches grow, the kingdom grows when individuals grow, and that's both numeric and spiritual. And the reality of life is this, if you don't grow, you're dying. Death may not be immediate, but it's on the horizon. And that's just true with life in general. Um, Kiki, we, we got Kiki just a few days after she was born, and and uh, so even as an infant in that foster care system, they would come and, and get her from our home and take her to visits with her biological parents. And uh, she did not fare well in all those times of being removed from our home and driven an hour across the Phoenix Valley and spending two hours in a place she was unfamiliar with and so forth. And when she was around four months old, we actually had to put her in the hospital for a while because all of that anxiety and all that stress and all that, that was going on in her little bitty life at four months of age was causing her not to eat well. And she was actually labeled with the term failure to thrive, which meant that if she continued on that path, her body was eventually going to start to shut down. And it didn't mean it was immediate for her, but in those moments, she was not growing. 
And we actually had to take her and, and spend some time in the hospital with her for them to, to get her up. And so one thing we need to understand, if, if I'm not growing spiritually and maturing spiritually in my life, then I'm, I'm not really living. <laughs> I'm really dying. If, if a local church is not growing numerically and spiritually, death is on the horizon. Again, it may not be immediate. But it's, it's coming. But one thing we can be confident of, God's kingdom is always growing. It may not grow in me, and it may not grow in you, and it may not grow in a local church, but God's kingdom is always growing because that's what God is about. In, in Matthew 21, uh, the chief priests and the elders, Jesus is speaking to them, and they basically are not growing <laughs> And they basically are not heeding Jesus' words and recognizing him for the Messiah that he, that he is. And they're basically rebelling against the word of God that prophesied who he was. And he says this to them in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. There's another place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says these words, again, to the religious leaders and the religious of his day. I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Because God's kingdom grows. And if we do not allow it to grow in our individual lives, or we don't allow it to grow in our collective lives, God will say, okay, I will leave you to what you want, and I'm going to move here, and I'm going to grow. God's kingdom grows. And so as we talk about kingdom growth, as we talk about church growth, as we talk about uh, individual growth, it it can be kind of dicey. Still, I was pulling pulling from my message from 2019. I talked about the fact that when you talk about church growth, that becomes sort of difficult because we live, quite frankly, in a very uh, materialistic, consumer-driven world. And so church growth largely in our country is this— What can we do to attract other Christians to come here? Now, let me say this from the outset. I have no problem with other believers coming to join our community of faith. I'm fine with that. I endorse that. I love that. If God calls them to come and be a part of our community of faith, I am all for it. But the problem comes within churches, all churches, when the people are transferring one to another out of this consumeristic mindset. Oh, well, that church can offer me more of this than this church can, so that's where I'm going to go. It's not that we're asking God, do we need to go there? It's just that this feeds me better, so I'm going to go. And what happens is, particularly in smaller churches, smaller churches get to a point where you can't keep up with that because of budgets, because of buildings, because of people that you have to, to minister. You, you can't, it, it's like the local little hometown pharmacy trying to compete with the big Walmart pharmacy that's eventually going to eat it up. And so the reality of it is, for small churches like ours, there has to be a shift. Last week on Sunday night, if you were here uh, and you were part of that meeting, the way that um, Mark Clifton from the North American Mission Board termed it was not a shift, but a pivot. That there has to be a pivot for small churches in our nation right now to understand what it means to grow. And the key for us is to understand this that our greatest growth potential is not in having other Christians be enticed to come and join us. Our greatest growth potential right now as a church is in seeing lost people saved. 
That is our greatest potential. And dare I say that is every church, whether they're 25 or 25,000, that is every church's greatest potential to see growth is to see lost people saved. And when we look here at Luke 15 in just a moment, that's the growth principle we're going to see. Growing one sinner saved at a time. Now, this is what parables do. Parables teach us about God. They teach us about how he works and what he values. They teach us uh, about how the kingdom of God works. They teach us, uh, sometimes Jesus taught in parables to teach us about the expectations of what God has for those who are called his people. And so you might find yourself, as we're getting ready to get into three parables today, asking the question sometimes when you read your scriptures, how do I know what this parable is trying to teach me? And as it is with all written scripture, context is the key. What's written before it, what's written after it, what sort of cultural or, or, or historical clues or context is around us. And then with parables, the really important thing is this. We've got to find the singular intent of the parable before we seek to make application from the parable. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. So let's, before we get into the parables, look at the context of these three stories that Jesus tells. Look at Luke 15, 1 and 2. Luke records, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. The context before we get into the three stories or parables that Jesus tells is this. The Pharisees and the religious leaders and the, the religious of their day who were listening to the Pharisees and the religious leaders had a big issue with Jesus hanging out with sinners and particularly Jesus eating with them. And in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, we see this time and time again. We don't see it as much in John's gospel because John wrote from the perspective of that the, the big issue that the religious had with Jesus was that he put himself on equal footing with, with God. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all talk about the accusations that were hurled at Jesus from the religious leaders, from the teachers of the law, from the religious people themselves. How can you be hanging out with these people? Because in their minds, to associate with a sinner was to make yourself unclean. In their minds, to associate with a sinful person was to make yourself unclean, particularly eating with a sinner. Because again, in, very, in Jewish cultural context, the table was often the place where the head of the household handed down spiritual truths about God and his kingdom. And so although they ate at the table, the table became a place of theology. In Jewish culture, the table became a place where the, the truths of God were handed down. And so to eat with a sinner was a big deal. Eating with someone in this culture and time was also a social sign of friendship or acceptance of them. Just a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, we see the story of Zacchaeus. And after Jesus deals with Zacchaeus up in the tree, you remember what he says to him? I must go stay at your house today. And it's worded in such a way that it's not, I think Jesus wanted to go stay at his house, but it's worded in such a way that it was a spiritual kingdom imperative that Jesus go stay at the house of the sinner Zacchaeus. 
and staying at his house would have implied they would have shared a meal as well. And so what was being taught in Jesus' day was this. If you ate with sinners, if you hung out with sinners, particularly if you went into their homes or had them into your homes, it meant you accepted or approved whatever sin or whatever lifestyle sin they were living in. That has some ramifications for some of our conversations today, doesn't it? And so the big deal, the context for these stories is this. For Jesus to eat with such people, for Jesus to hang out with such people, the religious of Jesus' Jesus' day said he must be approving of their sin. And so as we read the parables, keep that context in mind. So this is what we're going to do. It's a little different today. But we're going to read through the rest of Luke 15. I want you to follow along with me as I read. And then we're going to come back and we're going to kind of dissect them a little bit in this understanding of growth. So the context is that they're angry that he's eating and associating with sinners, sinful people. Verse 3 and 15. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate before, I, before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve, and he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry, even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. 
And your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. All three parables have a common theme. Something was lost, and now it's found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And in each parable, that which is lost is considered extremely valuable by the one who lost it. And because that which is lost is considered extremely valuable by the one who lost it, the one who lost it is incredibly persistent in finding it. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one who's lost. The woman doesn't say in the story, it's okay, I've still got nine coins. But instead, she casts light into the dark corners of her house. She sweeps and searches carefully and diligently until she finds it. And the father in the prodigal son story never stops looking for the son's return. In verse 20 it says, while he saw the son from yet a long way off, he ran to him. There, there are some who like to be nitpicky about this kind of stuff and go, well, you know, he probably didn't stay on the porch the whole time the son was gone. Just let the story speak, okay? It's not important whether he was on the, on the porch the whole time. It's important that the way Jesus tells it is that the father was constantly looking for the son who was lost. And in each one of these parables, numerical growth occurs. Now, it occurs one at a time, but it occurs. Ninety-nine become a hundred. Nine become ten. One becomes two. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in that the growth that we want to see has to come a lot or largely, we don't realize the value of one. I'm just going to ballpark today and and guess that maybe there's 60, 65 of us in here today, and I don't know how many are watching. And so let's let's just round it up to an even 80, including those who are watching and maybe those who are in other parts of the building. What would happen in this church if the 80 of us and, and we can include the kids into it in the numbers later, because sometimes kids are better witnesses than we are, amen. Let's just be real. Let's just imagine what it would look like if if the 80 or so of us just sought out this year in 2023 to reach one. If there was one person in your life, one family member, one co-worker, one fellow student, one person that you recreate with, it doesn't matter where they are in your life. If, If just one person was reached, let's just say hypothetically that only 50% of us see that happen. That is 40 people saved in a year. I've looked back through the historical records. I don't know that I've ever seen 40 baptisms in a single year in this church. Not just in this church, 
But I would say for most churches, that's true. And, and, and we're, we're going to do things in 2023. We're going to do events. We're going to do community engagement. We're going to go to places or, or have people invited here to events where we could see a large number at one time. But the, the difficulty is, so long as we think that's the primary focus of growth, then what we'll do is we'll rise and fall with every event. And what these parables are teaching us is that for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, for the son and daughter of God who wants to see kingdom growth occur in their lives and particularly in their church, it happens one at a time. The other common theme throughout all these parables is joy. Look again at verses 6 and 7 in the first one. Actually, let's look at verse 5, 6 and 7. When he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. In the same way, Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous in heaven straight away. Look in the second story, verse 9. It's very similar. When she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Even in the story of the prodigal son, at the end in verse 32, it doesn't talk about joy, but it says this. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It was fitting to throw a party, and parties are filled with joy. And it was fitting for the father to do that because what was lost had now been found. And notice in these verses, with these first two parables, we're going to camp out here on, with them for just a moment. In these first two parables, Jesus specifically states this is the way the kingdom of God operates. Look again at verse 7. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. In verse 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Jesus specifically in these two places, in the first two parables, makes it a point to say this is the way the kingdom operates. This is the way the kingdom finds joy. This is where God's heart resides. This is where the angels who are with God's, uh, where their hearts and emotions reside. They reside in joy when one person says yes. When one person moves from being lost to being found, this is of great importance for us, for this purpose. If the kingdom of God has purpose in finding one that is lost to see that he might be found, then what is the purpose of the church that represents that kingdom? We, we are called to represent the kingdom of God. Our purpose is to be the purpose of the kingdom of God. And I I think there are multiple purposes within a church body. We exist to have fellowship with one another. We exist to do ministry with one another. We exist to, to help out where we can, to serve people. Like there are lots of purposes. But all of those purposes are under the overarching purpose of the kingdom of God, which is that lost people need to be saved. That there are people who are dead in their sins who need to be brought to life in Jesus. 
And it's the reason why this is so important, because if we don't live under that purpose, if we don't mimic the purpose of the kingdom of God in our church life, then we'll still have events, and we'll still have ministry opportunities, and we'll still do missions trips, and we'll still do vacation Bible school, and we'll still do all those things, but our minds won't be focused on what is the ultimate purpose of doing this. And the ultimate purpose of doing this is that we mimic the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, joy is found over one sinner who repents. Let me, let me just ask you, church, where is your joy found the most? Now, again, I, I, I get it. I find great joy in the fellowship times with you all. I find great joy in the, the times of opportunity of serving next to you all. All of those things are joyful, but our joy should be multiplied and exponentially surpassed at the thought of someone saying yes to Jesus Christ, much more so than any other joy that we have in anything else, even more. In Jesus explicitly stating that these parables are teaching about the kingdom of God, even more, what he's doing is he's challenging the way the religious of his day viewed the kingdom of God. Because remember the context? They viewed the kingdom of God in this way. Oh, you shouldn't hang out with those people. You shouldn't sit down at the table with those folks. Their view of the kingdom was... Let's barricade ourselves. Let's put barriers up against those people. Let's insulate ourselves so we don't get tainted. Jesus' view of the kingdom of God was go after the one who's lost. No matter what it takes. Even if it means hanging out with them and eating with them. And so Jesus making this specifically about the kingdom of God is helping us to understand that it's not only understanding what God wants, but it's also rejecting what man wants. Because the religious leaders of his day did not want it. Now there are some who point to Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 5 about not hanging out with sexually immoral people. And there are some who say, well see, Paul, Paul kind of went against Jesus here because he told us not to deal with those people, right? And it's important for us to, to get this right. Because that's used as an argument quite often. I, I just want to read from 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. 1 Corinthians, I'm going to confuse you here for a little bit. 1 Corinthians is really the second letter that Paul wrote the church of Corinth. We don't, we don't have the first letter, or it didn't include in the canon. We trust God in, in that. But in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, When I wrote to you before not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin... I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. I meant you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer or a brother in Christ, yet indulges in sexual sin, is greedy, worships idols, is abusive, is drunkard, or cheats people. With those people, do not even eat. Now, now that, that opens up a whole host of another message that we could go into and talk about things like church discipline and when church discipline should exist and how it should exist, and, and that, that's not our focus for today. The point from both Paul's writings and what Jesus is telling us here in these parables is this. There's a difference between engaging sinners who are lost, who don't know Jesus, and engaging brothers and sisters in Christ who do know Jesus but aren't living like it. 
there is a distinction between those two operations. And clearly from what Jesus is teaching, and clearly from what Paul says, they both agree to the one who does not know Jesus, to the one who's lost and is not yet found, to the one who's dead and not yet alive, engage. Engage. Live your life among them so that they might perhaps be saved. Now, in the third parable, it's a little different. The, the kingdom exposure is not as, uh, not as prevalent necessarily because Jesus doesn't use the same kind of terminology in the third parable about God and the angels rejoicing and so on and so forth. But I want you to understand something. The third parable is still kingdom-minded. We have to remember when we read parables particularly, they are being told to a first century audience. And a first century audience would have picked up on clues and cues within the story that we don't naturally receive. So for example, in that culture and time, and particularly in that Jewish culture and time, it was the oldest brother's responsibility to take care of the youngers. If you think back to the story of Joseph... And Joseph's brothers gather around him, and they're jealous of him, and they want to kill him. Who is it that speaks up and says, let's not kill him, let's just put him in this pit for a moment until we decide what to do with him? It's Reuben, the firstborn to Jacob, therefore the oldest brother. And so when they hear this story that Jesus is teaching, and they hear about this younger son, and then this older brother comes on the scene in the story, Jesus' hearers would have perked up and gone, oh, he was supposed to take care of the younger brother. He was supposed to go after him. He was supposed to care for him. He was supposed to try to talk him out of it. And most importantly, he should be really happy that he's come back. Because he's got a responsibility for him. But in this story, what happens? The older brother is visibly angry. He refuses to engage in the celebration. He talks back to his father that we'll look at here in just a moment. And so where this last parable, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly speak of joy in the presence of God and his angels, where this last parable comes very kingdom-oriented is this. If you go back again to verse 2, And the context that precedes all these stories, again, what the problem was, was this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, the religious people of the day, complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even to the point of eating with them. Some of your translations say that they were grumbling or they were murmuring, but the word simply means this, to grumble in such a way as to be heard easily. It's not under your breath. It is grumbling, murmuring, angry, vocally, out loud for people to hear. And the older brother does this. Look at verses 28 and 29 there in that portion of Luke 15. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. Grumble, 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 anger, 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 complain, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. How dare you, Dad, welcome this son back into your home. Think about that comparison to the Pharisees and the religious of their day back in verse 2. How dare you, Jesus, eat with such people, associate with such people, 
Engage your life with such people. Clearly, when Jesus tells this story, he is lining up the older brother to reflect the attitudes and the lives of the religious of his day. And he does it in, in these ways. He, he has that sort of same comparison of the murmuring and the, and the, the grumbling. He has the displeasure that's being uh, given by the older brother that mimics the displeasure of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He, he chooses to have a very interesting thing done. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but back in the very beginning of the prodigal son story, in uh, verse 13, it says at the end, he wasted all of his money in wild living. Some of your translations say reckless living. And the, the, the Greek behind that phrase is just simply this, that he just wasted his money. There's nothing in that that says how he wasted it. There's nothing in that that says this is what he spent it on. But look at when the older brother starts complaining. What does he say? Your son has wasted all your money on prostitutes. He pinpoints a specific sin. Now, stay with me, because this is where this is all gets very important. He pinpoints a specific sin. How did he know that? Was he assuming that? We're not told in the Scriptures. But understand, what he does is what the Pharisees and the religious of Jesus' day did, what the religious of our day still continues to do, in that he pinpoints the sin of someone else while ignoring their own sin. You say, what sin did he commit? He stayed with his dad. He worked by his side. He did everything he asked him. The sin that he committed was this sin of pride, the sin of anger, the sin of refusing to enter into the joy of the situation. It was him saying to his dad, I'm so fed up with this that I want nothing to do with any of it. And why? Because, dad, I've been here all this time. I've worked hard. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. When sentences begin that way, that's pride. And rather than he himself seeing that and repenting of that, he continues to pursue it through the story. This is a very Pharisee, religious leader, religious person thing to do. Again, in Luke's gospel, in a, in a couple chapters, he tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what did the Pharisee do? I'm glad I'm not like him. And the reality of it, folks, is this, that we, we cannot go that route. I, I understand it. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I kind of understand the older brother's feelings here, and some of you might as well. He stayed behind. He worked for his father. He says he never disobeyed his father. But understand his pride in all of that before his father meant that he was blinded to the joy that was going on because the lost was now found. Again, look at verse 28, the very beginning of it. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His pride over his own life, the, the sin of anger in his life, all of that kept him from entering into the joy that was going on over someone who was lost but now is found. And again, I get it. But Dad, I've done all this, and here's the way it looks in church life. But God, you really want us to open up everything to these people? What if they spill something on the carpet? God, don't you know how long we, we work to pay that off? 
What, what if they break that, um, that, that, that little piece of furniture that's downstairs that's 172 years old? You, you think I'm joking, some of you. But I'm telling you, I've been in churches like that. I've walked in the churches where there was a desk and there were, there were notes taped on that desk that said, do not lean on or touch or sit on or come anywhere near this desk. Because we become like the older brother. God, don't you know how long we've faithfully served here? How many tithes and offerings we raised? Don't you know how many times we've said no to certain things with all these people out there say yes to it all the time? And when we go that route, we miss out on the joy. We miss out on the joy of engaging with people's lives. And I get it. I promise you I get it. As a pastor of over 20 years, I get it. People who don't know Jesus, their lives are messy. And their lives are messy for a reason. And they don't act like you and I do. And they don't speak like you and I do. And they don't do the things like you and I do. And they don't take the things seriously like you and I do. And they have a high disregard for sometimes even places that we hold very dear in our hearts. But that's why they need Jesus. That's why they need us to engage. That's why they need us to eat with them and be in their homes. And do the things that God asks us to do. To find joy the older brother representative of the pharisees the religious of jesus day refuses to enter into the joy because of his pride what does it say about a person who refuses to enter into the joy of god of the things that make god joyful what does it say about a, a, a collection of people who refuse to, to seek to find joy in the things that causes the very angels of heaven to rejoice? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Letters to Malcolm. It, it's on prayer. It was a fictional writing that he kind of made up this person and said, you know, we're going to talk about prayer. And it was kind of a way, I think, really for C.S. Lewis just to kind of get thoughts out of his head. Um, but there's a, a place in that book where he makes this statement, and it's, it's a really, really key statement, I think. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Now, that's a very contrasting statement. Because typically when we think about joy, we don't think about serious, do we? Joy is smiling and laughing and happy and kids skipping along. And like when you think about really pure joy, it doesn't seem very serious. But in making this statement, I think C.S. Lewis hits upon something that's very important. Joy is serious business. Finding joy is serious business. Living in joy is serious business. And according to the parables in the kingdom of God, the way you find joy the most is by seeing lost people come to know Jesus. It is a serious business to eat with them, to hang out with them, to live your life among them, to bear witness by your life and your word and your deed to the glory of God. But when we do, some will be saved. When we do, some will be saved. Because some will hear and see and respond. And what these parables teach us is that when that happens, 
joy becomes present. And when that joy is present in a church, I believe the church grows. And the joy is there in the church not because we have more people. The joy in there is there in the church not because we now have a bigger budget because they're giving. The joy is there not because we have more people to fill volunteer roles. The joy is there because we are continually reminded, hey, I was once lost and I'm now found. Now this person sitting next to me and in front of me and across from me and wherever they are and that we're doing life with together, they were lost, but now they're found. They were dead. But now they're alive. As we talk about growing today, understand this, and I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. I truly don't have any, any problem, any difficulty with like-minded Christian believers wanting to come and be a part of our community. But that can't be our sole purpose. That can't be the overarching purpose. Because when the churches make that their overarching purpose, here's what happens. You're constantly reinventing yourself. You're constantly thinking, how can we attract more people here? And the issue with that is whatever you attract them with, you better keep. Because if you attract them with a new Christian life center that has a gym and everything in it, you better make sure it never falls in the disarray. If you attract them with a particular ministry or program, you better make sure that if your church is open another hundred years, that ministry or program never goes away. But if we attract them with the gospel, if we attract them with the reality that they are lost, they are spiritually dead, but that there is a God who loves them so much that he wants to bring them to life, he wants to make them found, he wants to raise them to life, not only for all of eternity, but right now here where they are then it makes no difference whatever else you may offer as a church if that is your purpose that stays. The Last Sunday night, I talked about the fact that the harsh reality for churches in America is this. It's not a good picture. But on the other side of that coin, I think it's an excellent picture. <laughs> Within five miles of this church, I've, I've used this figure several times in the last couple of years. Within five miles of this church are 25,000 people at best about 40 percent of those people know Jesus at best there's a reason Jesus would say so many hundreds thousands of years ago look up the fields are white ripe for the harvest we are in that field today and we can either be in that field joyfully and engaging and connecting and saying no to ourselves and saying yes to what God wants or we can be in the field like the older brother God look at what I've done for you God look at how long I've been faithful for you God look at how many times I said no to things only one of those workers in the field leads to joy I'm going to close with this some of you may know the um, comic duo Penn and Gillette, or Penn and Teller, I'm sorry, Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette, who is uh, in that comic duo, he's the one that talks, the bigger guy that talks. And he is, um, 
unabashedly a strong atheist. Not only personally, individually, but really advocates for atheism wherever he goes. But he told this story back in 2016 about being at a show, and the show ended, and a man approached him and thanked him for the show and so forth, and the man was a Gideon, and he had a Gideon New Testament with him, and he said, I know you're not a believer, but I just I, I want to share this with you. And I've highlighted a few passages, and I've wrote my my name and my number in there. And if you have any questions, I'd love for you to call me. Just very very gentle, very uh, very welcoming to him. And Penn talked about how much that meant to him. And let me let me read to you what he said in this interview. <clears throat> he said, "If you believe there's a heaven and hell." And people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever you call it. And you think it's not really worth telling them because it would be socially awkward. Then leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. He goes on to say this. How much do you have to hate somebody to not, he uses the word proselytize, which is the fancy word for sharing your faith. How much do you have to hate somebody to not, proselytize how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you there's a certain point where I would tackle you and he says and according to you who believe this is more important than that If you believe what this book says, if you believe in the God who wrote it through the hands of men, then what it says is every messy sinner is destined for a hell eternally apart from God without Jesus. And if we can believe that and not commit ourselves to sharing and engaging, and in being involved in their messy lives, then we have no business to call ourselves Christians. We have no business to call ourselves a church that represents the kingdom of God. Grow. Grow. And understand, if we don't grow, God will take the kingdom and he will grow it elsewhere. He said it in his word. I will take it and I will give it to others who are producing its fruits. Grow. People's lives, eternal lives, hinge on you and I being faithful in this. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.